from early on, start building that sales team and getting it in place with recruiting the best people, hiring them, developing them and retaining them, because that's how you're going to get to be a billion dollar company. Hello, hello. I welcome you to another episode of Reaching Your Goals. Reaching Your Goals is hopefully your favorite career podcast where you get the insights to go from motion into action and make things happen. I'm your host, Johanna Herbst. I'm a certified executive and career coach with an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. My mission is to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness, and have some fun along the way. Today is our first on reaching your goals. For the very, very first time, I have a guest on for the second time, and it's no other than Liz Elting. So welcome, Liz. I'm very happy to have you again. And when we spoke for the first time, you told me that your new book, Dream Big and Win, will come out this September, actually on September 26th. And I took that occasion and said like, oh, then you need to come back that we can really deep dive on your book. So today we will focus more on your book and make sure that our audience, they learn more insights from you, from your wisdom on how to become better entrepreneurs. And before we get there, I have a few words I would like to share for everybody who maybe doesn't know you yet, hasn't listened yet to our first episode. So just a few words to introduce you. So Liz is the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elding Foundation. She's an entrepreneur, business leader, lingua feel, philanthropist, feminist, and mother. After living, studying, and working in five countries across the globe, Liz founded Transperfect out of an NYU dorm room in 1992 and served as co-CEO until 2018. She studied the shortcomings of other translation companies and found ways to improve upon them. In her new book, Dream Big and Win, Translating Passion into Purpose and Creating a Billion-Dollar Business, we actually see the cover in her background, Liz reveals a counterintuitive approach to success and divulges practical and inspiring tips that everybody can implement immediately to not only dream big, but also to win. And the book is refreshing, it's humorous, and I'm sure everybody will want to buy it after our conversation. With that, it's time to jump in. Liz, it's so great to see you again. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing so great. Thank you so much, Joanna, for having me back. I am so excited to see you and honored to be here. So thank you again. Uh, thank you. And as we did last time, I would love to start again with rapid fire questions. They are all new. So I hope you are ready for some excitement. <laughs> I'll try. Yes, always. Always exciting with you because you're full of surprises. So let's go. Yes. So your dad, he brought Kentucky Fried Chicken to Portugal. What is your favorite fast food chain? What's so funny about that is I don't like fast food. I don't <laughs> like it. I, I can't stand it. You know, it's so funny because my kids adore it. My kids give me such a hard time. They're like, Mom, how can you not like fast food? And they start saying, you know, McDonald's, uh, Chipotle. You know, whatever. How can you not? And I don't. I don't. And I, 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 could, tell you. You a little, I could tell you a little funny anecdote about that. But no, I 
I do not like it. I like good sit down food. So yeah, sorry, long answer to your rapid fire question. I love it. Who is one of the entrepreneurs that you admire the most? There's so many. Um, okay. Okay. One, you want one. Well, Ariana Huffington's fabulous. Oh. I love her. Uh, Danny Meyer is amazing. And what he really did is with food is he made it with Shake Shack. Yes, technically it's fast food, but it's high yes. quality fast yes. food. Yes. But the list goes on. I mean, Bill Gates. Steve Jobs. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I like that the first one that came to your mind was a woman. I like that. <laughs> yes, yes, we need more women entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what word comes to mind when you think of work-life balance? Okay, great question. I know it's super important to everybody, to all of us. It's very current. <laughs> current um pretty much impossible yes yes and in your book you mentioned at some point that some interviewees they like college grads they brought their parents to interviews is that true or false it's really true is that not shocking yes we had situations where Their parents showed up. They, their parents said, oh, oh, we'll just sit in the lobby. And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, the lobby of our office on the 39th floor. So not, not downstairs even, but literally there. So that was crazy. Yes. Yes. And, and sometimes they would call up after the interview and ask why their child didn't get the job. <laughs> so, yeah. And mentioning jobs, what was your very first job? My first, very, very first was walking a child to school. Oh, I, I love it. I was in Toronto when I was 10 years old, and I was in grade five, as we say in Canada, grade five, and the child was in grade two. And I remember I said, I will walk him to school every day. I got paid $5 a week, you know, US or Canadian dollars, that is. And that was my first job. Oh, we had this discussion separately. Like the world is becoming so much more focused on social media. What is actually your favorite social media platform? I like LinkedIn. I do. I love LinkedIn. I mean, I, I think they're all interesting. Instagram's fun with the photos, right? And the reels. Yeah. But I, I love business. Business is fun. And the LinkedIn's fun. I'm always learning when I, when I look at LinkedIn. And I love that. One last question for the rapid fire. There's one color that is very obvious when I look at you. It's pink. Oh, yes, it is. Like when you wear pink, you have pink in your background. How does pink make you feel? You know, pink makes me feel amazing and I love it. And I always gravitate toward it. It's just so uplifting. I have yes. trouble letting it go. I will always forever be drawn to and love pink. I love it. That is so cool. So rapid fire questions were a little bit shorter today, but we had them already last time a little bit longer. So I would love us to jump in. And today it's more about learning about your book. So to get us started, what actually did trigger you to write this book and why now? Yes. Thank you for asking. So the reason I wrote the book is because when I was in my 20s, when I started my company, I had had just three years of work experience between college and grad school. So I looked for whatever business books and books on entrepreneurship and leadership that I could get my hands on. Read a bunch of them. 
but I couldn't find one quite like this. It's a beach read slash business book. It's it's very fast moving. It's really my story, but my story with as many business lessons as I could fit in there, what I learned from my experiences. And that's what I wanted way back when. I wanted someone I could relate to. They could have been written by anyone. I mean, usually they were written by you know, older people, usually men, and they didn't talk about their personal experiences. Now, when I read business books, I love the memoirs with the anecdotes, of course, and the lessons, but that's what I wanted back then. And that's what I wanted to share now. I learned so much during my time as a business person, and I still do. I wanted to share my lessons based on what I did right and the many things yes. I did wrong. So that's why I wrote the book. You just mentioned the personal side because when I read the book, I also could see that you opened up and you showed yourself from your vulnerable side. And I imagine it's two different things, writing about it and then actually going to podcasts, going to fireside chats and to talk about that. How is that now to talk about your life and have people dissect it? It's, it's exciting. I... I've always been a very open person, very transparent. I I don't have a lot of personalities. I really have one, which is just me. So it was very fun to share my stories and talk about, you know, the stuff that went wrong in my life and how it made me feel and what I learned from it. That was quite liberating. I, I didn't get into every personal uh, situation I was in. And that that is one of the challenges of writing a book and partially because it could affect other people. Perhaps my family yes. did want did not want me to open up about them, and that was an issue. Or you know, previous people I worked with in business, I, I felt like it wasn't yes. appropriate to share everything. But about myself, very open, and that was a lot of fun. You just mentioned other people, because there's one question that I just have to ask. Like you talk about your experience within banking and then how it was like, hey, listen, phone. Have you ever met any of those people again? And if so, Did they apologize? You know, that's really interesting. Because it was such a brief time in my life. I was only at that company for a total of six weeks. And I never crossed paths with them again. Mm. You know, I guess that's the interesting thing about the world I was in versus the world we're yes. in now. Back in the early 90s, you would meet people and then you wouldn't see them again. Now, of course, we would come across each other on social media, right? And we would never lose time. No, I didn't. What happened there was a gift because it basically launched me. It was my aha moment, and it made me realize now is the time. I'm 26. Yes. I know what I love as far as industry and culture, and I want to go create it. So, yes, but great question. No, I haven't seen them again. From your book, I picked up a couple of themes that I feel like are super important for anybody who wants to become an entrepreneur. I would like to go through with them with you. The first thing that is so clear is when you think about a product, you say that it doesn't need to be something new. You can improve upon something existing. Yes. I think it's so important. Don't confuse being an entrepreneur with being an inventor. You don't need to invent something entirely new to be wildly successful. Instead, it's about being can-do, being curious, looking at the problems you see and thinking, okay, I see this, but I have ideas on how it can be done better. And then just taking it upon yourself to solve that problem. And I think we all do that and see that every day. I mean, 
you know, like yes. you and your podcast is amazing and you've made it special by some things you've added to it that really differentiate you. And I love that. And that was the idea too, way back when with my company, when we started, there were 10,000 translation companies out there, 10,000 back in 1992. But most of them were started and run by translators who were immensely talented. I mean, I was never translator level, but I, I had the business background and I thought we could grow it. It was a mom and pop industry. Yes. And if you don't, if you don't do the translation, then you really have the opportunity to grow it which was the advantage I had. So yes, it's about doing it differently and filling a gap that's needed in the industry. And I guess the one thing just to add on to that, doing it differently and better. Oh, absolutely and better. Absolutely. Be yeah, without question and better. Guys, the one thing that is also coming through is that you were delivering the best possible product and you made your clients feel like royalty. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I used to say back when we started, this is how we're going to differentiate ourselves. Because I had worked at another translation company where it was the largest in the industry at the time. It, I mean, it was 90 people, but it wasn't a mom and pop. But I thought the way we can do this better is by spoiling the client with service, treating the clients like royals, as you say, making them feel like they are our only clients, anticipating their needs before they know they have them. So, yeah, absolutely. That that was really the key differentiator when we started the company. Because what I also liked about that, I think that allowed you to also charge a premium because then it's not all about the price. Don't make this all a price competition because uh -huh. then you turn it into a commodity. and Nobody wants that. Absolutely. And that is so true. We looked at the pricing that was out there. And because we had no overhead, we could come in competitively, but quickly. We needed to raise our prices because we were adding the value. And yes, it's all about making sure you're adding value as far as service, as far as quality, as far as innovation. So absolutely, at least for our business. Yes. I mean, obviously, Walmart has done quite well. I'm thinking there are companies out yes. there that can be competitive on price, but that those are commodities they're selling. In our case, yes. it was a B2B service, and that was not possible. And Big name companies, our client base, were not looking for the, the cheapest. They were looking for the best. And the one thing I also found very, very interesting is that you put this huge focus on sales and really pushing sales. Yeah. We all have ideas. We all have dreams, right? But doing eclipses dreaming. It's about saying, okay, I have this dream. I want to create the world's largest language solutions company. And for our business, it was literally making phone calls and sending out letters and doing 300 phone calls a day, 300 letters a, get, a day, and not letting myself up for air until I made sure I did that. And then as time went on, our team did that. It was all about sales, 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 revenue, 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 and being really tough on ourselves with goals and deadlines. And I think that is a huge differentiator. Because a lot of people yes. want that silver bullet, but in the end, goals with deadlines is the absolute key and it sounded like you were not only contacting one person from one law firm but you were contacting all of them so that they had the transperfect flyers on their desk <laughs> yes you're right and you know that's a really interesting point i mean certainly back then nothing was centralized there wasn't a central decision maker but even now 
where, wherever it's possible, I'm a, I'm a believer in more is more, you know, rather than trying to find the right person, the perfect person and spending so much time on it. There are times when it's just about numbers and action creates action. And that was the case for us. And that was how we built the company because you never know what's going to work. And I, I talk about this in the book too, how yes. you need to just try new things. You, you, you can't spend so much time perfecting where, what is the perfect product? What is the perfect service? Where is the perfect office? I mean, sure. You get your data, you get your information. I love that too. It's very helpful. But in the, in the end, you just have to take a risk and try it. And if it doesn't work out and it's not getting the revenue, the profit, the results, then you remove it from your repertoire and you try something new. But you just can't wait until you have all the perfect information or you won't get anything done. So I think that's, that's a very important point as well. Yes. And then also whom you bring on, because you were saying that attitude is more important than aptitude. And I found that so intriguing. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yes, because, I mean, we, we brought on some very interesting people in the early days who had wonderful skills, right? I mean, they often were linguists, much better linguists than I ever was. Uh, one person who I mentioned, she refused to empty the garbage. And we were all emptying the garbage. I mean, there we were in our first office, but it was an executive suite. And it was a low-cost executive suite where we were able to use the office, but we needed to empty our own garbages. And she said, no, I don't do that. And that was a sign, right? Because we all need to do whatever is necessary. We all need to wear many hats, and certainly in the early days, but we need to be flexible all along the way. We need to be service oriented. Yes. And that's a very important quality in a person you hire and someone who won't empty their garbage, you know, <laughs> that they're not service oriented. So, so that would be an example. Whereas if you hire people with the right attitude, the skills can be taught. I mean, well, skills are helpful from the get go, but certainly some skills can be taught. And the industry can be taught. What I like about that attitude is one of the, those things that I can actually control. I mean, I can go to work every morning, say hello to everybody, ask them how they are doing and actually pick up a conversation if I feel somebody is in need. So that is something where I can really relatively easily make a difference. So I feel like that is something that everybody can take away to look at what is my attitude today and where can I maybe improve? Right. You're right. I mean, that we can control. We can control exactly our our positivity, our gratitude. Exactly. Our, I mean, I can smile at you. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're and you're so upbeat, and that you can control. And also, you either are that way or you aren't. But it, but yes. you can also, as you say, you can decide one day to be that way. Yes. Whereas your attitude or your skills, you know that. that but um absolutely so um i'm a big believer in that you were also talking about the curiosity and you were just mentioning it like a few minutes ago because i had exactly the same observation myself like i ask questions all day long and when i go somewhere and people don't ask anything i'm like am i that boring come on no you are beyond interesting and i couldn't agree with you more i feel like the people who achieve a lot of success in life tend to be incredibly curious. I think that is important in, in all of the positions. Certainly if you're an employee, 
that's how you learn. That's how you solve problems. That's how you, you, you sell. If you're an owner, oh my God, that's how you, you do the same. You're, you're selling, you're coming up with the next idea, the next innovation. And it helps when you are genuinely curious. And, and that of course relates to sales. When you, when you go in and you meet with a client, you, you should not show up and throw up, but instead you should sit there, ask questions, listen, and then tell them how you're going to solve their problems. And again, because of your curiosity, figure out what more you can do for them. You know, anticipate their needs before they know they have them. So curiosity, so key, so key. And then you also created a work culture where people could thrive. And how did you make that happen? Yeah, and I think that was something that we continually worked on because in the early days, we made mistakes. I, I thought that sales and production needed to be on the same team. That was another thing that I learned from the company I was at between college and business school. One of the problems was I always felt after being first in production and then in sales there, that sales and production couldn't agree. Sales wanted to sell something. Production said, no, it can't be done. It can't, can't, can't. And they were fighting constantly. So. One of my thoughts when I started was, let's make it so sales and production are on the same team here. So that was one of the big focuses. And one of the ways we did that is was incentivizing both of them to make it so when the company did well, they did well. And that related to aligning um, their pay with revenues and profit of the company and their respective divisions. And we had teams in sales working with teams in, in production, like the finance team, like the life sciences team or pharmaceutical team. They were working together to solve problems for clients. Another thing, though, we did beyond that to create an amazing culture was lots of awards. I'm a big believer in positive reinforcement. So many awards at our holiday party in December or January, at our summer party, uh, monthly with wheel spins and prizes, you know, lots of positive recognition and in public huge believer that when you're giving positive recognition you want to do it in public supposedly it's uh three times more valuable if it's done in public and then working on that work work life balance that you brought up earlier <laughs> for the employee because it's not sustainable for most people to work 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 and we learned we lost a lot of employees in the early days because we were expecting too much and we thought money could solve the problem Uh, you know, the work too many yes. hours. And of course it couldn't. So making sure people's work-life balance is there, that they are not working crazy hours and they still have time for their outside life. So were then the people sent home after a certain oh. amount of hours or how did that happen? Yeah, I wish it were that simple, right? Because <laughs> when you're in the service business, it wasn't so simple. So we, you know, found solutions over the years, like creating shifts. So A person could leave at the end of the day and, and hand their work off to the next shift. Also, as we opened offices around the world, we would make it so an office in another time zone could handle the work. And then finding ways to make sure people took time, like giving them comp time. If they were working day in and day out for a week or two on a project, they were given comp days after that. And they needed to take them. We would require them to, unless they really didn't want to. And yeah. same with their paid time off. We would require them 
to take it. Another thing that was a fun idea is giving their birthdays off, you know, finding perks like that. Okay. You know, sure. People don't want to work on their birthday, but often people won't take it as a holiday and just say your birthday's off. You're taking your birthday off. And, and that, of course, you can plan ahead for. So that was another. That's it. Yeah. And, and the other thing I just have to ask, like, what was the policy on parental leave? Because I know the way you did it was, I would not call it best in class. I'm sorry. <laughs> It was worse in class. It was worse in class. And it was a while ago. But what I learned was, you know, first of all, you need to make sure your coworkers, your co-founders agree with you and you're on the same page. You want to make sure that you can get the proper family leave in place without question. I unfortunately was not able to go on maternity leave. And I say to everyone now, if you're creating a company, you must have proper family leave policies for everybody. I didn't get that luxury. And, and there were a number of reasons why. Um, so I think it's critical. It's absolutely critical. I can talk about why you need as an owner to make sure you have a succession plan. Even, you know, as the owner, often you feel like, well, only I can do this or Maybe I don't have the right team in place. Maybe I haven't delegated properly. Maybe you don't trust other people to do it. There are all kinds of reasons why you can feel that way, but you need to set it up so you as the owner can take your family leave. And then, of course, that you're providing it to your people because it's not sustainable for anyone to work at a company that doesn't provide that. And, you know, unfortunately, in the U.S., we don't have laws that require it. So our employers need to make sure it happens. So feel very strongly about that you were just mentioning something else where i had a big aha on my end like this idea that the owner thinks he or or she is the only person who can do it because you said if the owner is doing their sales at some point they need to start delegating it otherwise they will not be able to grow into a billion dollar business because they only have two heads absolutely no you said so well no that's Completely right. And of course, the owner is often the first salesperson, usually the first salesperson. They may, the owner may think they're the best salesperson and they may, they may care more than anyone, right? But from early on, start building that sales team and getting it in place with recruiting the best people, hiring them, developing them and retaining them, because that's how you're going to get to be a billion dollar company making, creating a world-class sales organization. I mean, there are so many entrepreneurs I know that have amazing ideas, amazing offerings, amazing infrastructures on the back end, on the production end, but they are the salesperson and the only salesperson or the absolutely critical one. And that needs to change. People will not scale up if that doesn't change. So that should be part of the plan from the get-go. And to make that happen, you need money. So that is the last theme I would like to talk about because you talk about frugal beginnings and I admire that you didn't require any outside funding. You were growing it from nothing yes. to a lot. Yes. And I think it's great if you can avoid the outside funding because you can save yourself a lot of time on creating that perfect business plan and that perfect deck. and then going out and spending a crazy amount of time trying to get the funding, which is nice. But then in the end, you're still responsible for revenue and profit and making sure you have it. So instead, I find, found for my business, my time was better spent 
focusing on revenue and profit. And so how could we afford salespeople? Great question. I feel like as you make money and in the early days, uh, you know, we didn't have salespeople, but basically keeping your costs incredibly low, your overhead incredibly low. First, we were in a dorm room. Then we were in a very inexpensive executive suite, but making it so whatever profit you have goes to sales and marketing costs to scale up your company. So minimizing the other costs as much as you can. I mean, of course, you still have to create quality and you need to deliver quality. That goes without saying, but whatever profit you have, don't take it for yourself. That's instead reinvest in the company in sales and marketing. And so then you can hire the salespeople. Now with the salespeople, there are a few ways of doing it. One relates to salespeople and the other is getting people to sell for you. Uh, When I say getting people partners to sell for you, that was something I did early on. I basically would be out networking whenever I could, although there wasn't a lot of time for that. I would find companies who say, said, oh, I like that idea. And I have a client who might need that. And then making a deal with that client where rather than paying your 10% commission to your salesperson that you have in-house, pay that client 5%. And then you keep that other 5% for either the person you have internally who's handling it or yourself to reinvest in your company. So you have other companies out there selling your product. So that was one thing I did in the early days before there was a lot of money to deal with. But the other thing we did was hire salespeople. And there, what you want to do is hire them for as little <laughs> as you can guaranteed, meaning low draw, low draw, but as high of an upside as you can handle, you know, whether it's 10% of revenue or what it is, and then continue paying that number uh, through job 100 and job 1000 for a given client. So that way, that salesperson can make a lot more money than they would elsewhere. Sure, they have to start low. They're like an entrepreneur. They're investing in themselves. They're sacrificing in the short term for a very high upside in the long term. And that works well for them if they're willing to take that risk the way the entrepreneur needs to. And they can live on very little initially. And then they can be making a lot more than they, they ever would elsewhere. And that's the idea. And that's how you afford it. And I also like the notion what you said about... um when you have outside investors, like companies, they start spending money left and right. And I've seen that when I went to some startups here, I looked at the offices, like prime location, also like good chairs. I think you were always talking about this one brand for chairs. I was like, how can you afford that? And then, you know, I looked it up. I was like, okay, you guys got 50 million. That's why you have a luxurious office here, but it's wasting money. That is so true. And that's part of the beauty of never having investors. You will and develop a much more frugal culture because you have to when you're not using other people's money. You shouldn't be. You don't appreciate it as much. You go and you're extravagant with it. When it's your own money and your company's money, you will be a lot more careful or you certainly have to be a lot more careful. But for the investors, you should in any case be more careful. The point is, People often aren't when it's their own money yes. and they have to make sure they make profit every month. They are more careful and they are a lot more strategic and really, and we certainly did that when we started. And that was uh, a key part of the culture that carried through for a very long time. I was working in Procter and Gamble. That was also like an advice. Use the company money as if it was your own. I love that P&G said that. 
And that was actually one of our core values, own it, owning it, meaning treat the company's money as if it's your own, treat the project as if it's your own, treat the client as if it's your own or, or that you work there, you know, really own it, get into it. Don't think I'm working for, uh, this is not my money. I don't care. Uh, I don't, you know, they're a client at the end of the day. No, the client is important to me. They're as important to me as my close friends and family and really treating it all as if you own it. And then the project too, making it so every project is so important to them. So it's that own it culture, both with respect to money and everything yes. else they yes. do day in and day out. And, you know, that was one of my key points in the book too. As an owner, of course, you're going to feel that way. But if as an employee, you act that way, I mean, you feel that way and you act that way, the sky's the limit, whether you're at another company and you're an intrapreneur or whether, you know, or whether you're thinking of starting your own company, that owning it culture, no matter what, is so key. This is something you can start doing as of today, become an owner of your company. Yes, yes. I, I think that is the difference, right, between a, an okay employee and an amazing employee. The moment an employee is if they own their company, whether it's a tiny startup that they're an employee at or a, you know, 200,000 person company, if they act like an owner, all of a sudden they're going to do so much better in their job. They're also going to feel so much better because they'll feel more invested. They'll feel like they have a purpose, but that is so key to being a great employee. And, and in your book, you said a few times, and I need to read this out, you worked like no one else would, so you could live tomorrow like no one else could. How are you living today? Did it come true? Yes, you know, it did. And I am so incredibly lucky. And I thought that while I was doing it, because, you know, when, when you asked about work-life balance, and, and one of the words I thought was impossible, I think it's very hard for entrepreneurs who want to be wildly successful, right? I mean, the word I, I think when I think of entrepreneurs is addicted, obsessed, yes. because you have to be to be successful. And and that was how I acted. And I handled my work for a very long time. And sometimes I said to myself, well, this is hard. Why am I doing it? And then I think what you need as an entrepreneur to do to make it tolerable, you know, to, to make it tenable is to create the best culture for your employees, certainly to make them happy and to get good results, but also for yourself. Make it so you like it. You like the people you're working with. You all have this common goal and you're you're working hard, but you're playing hard together all with the same purpose. But back to the question. So yes, I worked incredibly hard and I tried to make it fun in the process. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs do that. And now been able to sell. I sold my company five years ago. And I started a foundation. And what I do with my foundation is I focus on women and marginalized populations. And I try to make the world a better place and achieve equality for all. So that's what I do. And I think, yeah, now I work today like no one else will. So you can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. You know, I didn't know so much about the give part until as I was going along and in the later years, I just got problem, 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 problem. And I thought, well, when I'm done with this, I'm going to try to fix those problems. And now I, I am so fortunate that I get to live and give in a way that I didn't anticipate. And it's because of what, what I did in the early years that 
you know, so many people are doing and can do, and it really does pay off. You now mentioned the word um, purpose and passion a few times, because I guess if you invest so much time as an entrepreneur or even as an employee in your job, you better pick something that you enjoy. I mean, in your case, you have this love for language. So I guess that was really already in your passion. That was something you were excited about. So I guess that helps a lot picking something that fits you as a person. Absolutely. And, and I was fortunate because you never know how it's going to work out. I knew I loved languages. And then I was fortunate to come across a company that was doing language work for businesses. And I thought it could be done better. So I had the, and I had the opportunity. And it was the beginning of globalization. So what a wonderful time to do it. Um, yes. Right. So I was lucky as far as that. I, you know, there's been talk by some people that I listen to. Don't just do what you're passionate about, because if you get good at something, you're going to love it and you're going to be successful. So I think that's true. If you're fortunate enough to find an industry that you love where there's a need, yes, just, you know, grab it, do it, don't wait. But I think, you know, some people realize the things they're passionate about are working with people, right? I mean, and that's obviously very broad or like, yes, and then they become coaches. <laughs> right, they become coaches, yes. Or solving clients' problems, you know, and then it could be just getting to a point where you're a, you're a salesperson, right? You're solving clients' problems. I think if you're fortunate enough to be able to find a need related to one of your hobbies, you know, maybe, you know, languages yes. or whatever it is, great. The other thing I'd say about it is, yes, I, to this day, adore languages, and that's how I got into the industry. But I, I realized over the years, it wasn't just about that. It was about bringing in great people and being a part of their development and watching them grow and watching them become enormously successful in their careers. And that was what became a passion, my passion. Yes. So it moved into that. And then it became about learning new things and continually learning. And essentially, that's what I get to do now because of the different things I'm doing. So I think your passions evolve too, right? As you go through life, you see all the problems that need to be yes. solved. And part of it is because I was working hard, I didn't have time to focus on them. So now how lucky am I that I, I can now focus on solving a lot of these problems? And there's so many to solve. So that is fulfilling. Also, I'm learning so much, as I said, and then I'm meeting so many amazing people that are trying to solve the world problems. And that's what they dedicate their lives to that are smart, that are curious. And it just has really opened up my world. And, you know, again, I realize there's so much more that needs to be done, but I get the opportunity to work on it. And hopefully we can see some real change in the not too yes. distant future. And you just mentioned the word smart, curious, learning. I mean, this is also what I get out of that book by getting to know you through how you were writing, how you are sharing your story. Because I feel like this book is relevant for somebody who wants to go into entrepreneurship, but also somebody who wants to perform better in their actual job. Like there is so much that you can reapply even if you might not build an actual billion dollar company. So it's not limited to only that. <laughs> no, and I appreciate your saying that, jo Joanna, because I, I, that's what I was trying to do with the book. I mean, 
yes, I had an idea if I'm going to do it, why not dream big? And then if I don't accomplish my goal, you know, at least I'll get hopefully pretty close. But you're right. I mean, I I think this applies if you want to create a business that's five people, that's 10 people, that's whatever. I think so many of these lessons, you know, I hope are valuable to people. And I think, you know, should be. And then if you are an employee at someone else's company, as as we talked about, the whole own it mentality and the value of intrapreneurship, you know, being an entrepreneur within your company is so critical. So I really tried to, you know, share lessons based on what I learned that I would have loved to have heard about and read about when I was starting out in my 20s or when I was starting out my company or both. And you were throwing in some research examples from other companies, other entrepreneurs. So I found that really a very well-rounded picture. So I took away a number of to-dos for myself. So I can really say it's helping. <laughs> Wonderful. I, yeah, I will say I did give some anecdotes and some yes. Wonderful quotes from some some of my real heroes that I just think, wow, what a what an important lesson. I learned that over the years, but how beautifully did you say that? Right. You know, with some of the quotes I put in there from other people. So thank you. I mean, I appreciate that because um yeah, that's what I was trying to do. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, I think it worked. And I would like to thank you for letting me read your book before it's out, because I think it's coming out on the 26th, right? That's right. That's right. September 26th, but it can be pre-ordered now. And yes, thank you so much for reading it and and sharing. Oh, I loved it. I can really recommend, because as I said, I'm taking things away for myself that I put on my to-do list. It's more focused on the sales things, actually. So yeah. Wonderful. You make me work. <laughs> yeah, so that is a lot of it. I mean, I think in the end it shows it's a lot of hard work, but I think everybody who's been incredibly successful yes. in their life has worked so very hard. And yes, yes. But, but thank you. Thank you. Yes. So everybody should go out. They should buy Dream Big and Win, translating passion into purpose and creating a billion-dollar business. How else can people stay in touch with you? Well, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. That's on Amazon.com. Um, how else can they stay in touch? My website, LizElting.com, uh, would be a wonderful way. I'm also on social media as Liz Elting as well. Dan, Instagram, Facebook, X, <laughs> Threads. Um, yes. And, um, and then my foundation. I also have a website, ElizabethElting.foundation.org. And I would love to hear from all of you. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me for the second time. I hope that at some point we make it a third time. So you're always welcome. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Joanna. I so appreciate it. This was so much fun. And yeah, I just so appreciate you. You're amazing. Thank you. I hope you feel inspired now to dream big and win. And if you need a partner in crime, somebody to bounce your ideas off, you can always reach out to me and with my coaching hat on, I'd be happy to support you in your journey of dreaming big and making things happen. You can reach me at johanna.herbst at delegate.com or you can message me via LinkedIn and I also put my contact details in the show notes. Since you're still listening, have you already subscribed to the show? 
If not, it's only one click and then you will get the next episode in your inbox when it drops on Tuesday. And if you don't want to wait till Tuesday, you can also, on top of that, subscribe to our newsletter at delegate.substack.com and then you will get some inspiration potentially even before next Tuesday. So stay tuned. And with that, we are done for today. We are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.